Jesus's atoning sacrifice that we just read about makes possible a reunification between God and humanity. So our sin problem that produced an alienation, a separation between God and humanity, um, has been resolved through the reconciliation made possible in the atonement. So the basic meaning of the atonement, if you don't catch on to anything else, take that old English phrase, at one mint. The old English phrase describes the atonement. We're made at one with God again through the sacrifice of Jesus. That's the basic meaning of the atonement. And in this portion of Romans, Paul doesn't explore how the atonement works or why a sacrifice is needed to make the atonement happen. We'll get to that a little bit more later in the letter. But he does offer us three important concepts, three important realities that the atonement produces that connects to our threefold sin problem. So earlier in our series, I've argued that we we have a sin problem and it has three parts. We're under the oppression of sin. We have guilt because of our participation in sin. And we lack glory because of our sin. So we have an oppression problem. We have a guilt problem and we have a glory problem. And they're solved through the atonement. Our oppression by sin is met with redemption. Our guilt is met with justification and pardon. And our lack of glory is resolved through what I'm going to call righteousification. Hang on to that. We've talked about this earlier in the series, but it will show up here again. Now, I want to argue this morning that we need to have all three aspects of the sin problem and all three aspects of the atonement, or else we're going to go just a little bit wrong in our understanding of Christianity. And I think that many of you who have um, experienced problematic editions of Christianity, a lot of the problems you face trace back to an overlooking of one of the aspects of our sin problem or an overemphasis of one of the aspects of the atonement. Um, I, I will point some of these out throughout, but basically I'd say that when we look broader contemporary Christianity, when we see issues with it, um, it, when we see issues in individual churches, often it traces back to an underemphasis on some of the aspects of sin and atonement and overemphasis on just one of them. So sometimes if you hear people say, the heart of the gospel is redemption, and they leave out justification or um, glorification, you're going to have a problem. Same thing if you say the heart of the gospel is justification and you leave out the other two. Same thing if you say the heart of the gospel is glorification. If you leave one out, you weaken the rest. That, you know, if you emphasize one, the other two are weakened. So I want to try to show that throughout. So if you're a Christian, if you identify as a Christian, what I want to help you do is to broaden your concept of sin and salvation and appreciate it more deeply and enter into the reality of this great salvation that we have through the atonement of Christ. Now, if you're not a Christian here, I really want to just briefly show you that most of humanity agrees that these three problems are there. They're just defined a little bit differently. Um, Most of humanity is willing to admit in a secularized and demythologized way that humans have a problem. 
they're just refashioned into unjust systems, psychological guilt, and the limitations of being human. But they kind of map almost directly onto the threefold sin problem that we've addressed. And when you look at human history, you see a progression of humanity trying to overcome these issues, but apart from God or Christ. So this historian who's very insightful, he's not a Christian, so what I'm about to read isn't as respectful to God as I would want it to be, but he, he shows that humans recognize that we have this threefold problem and that they're trying to solve it by becoming more God-like themselves. Um, this guy, Yuval Harari, writes in a book called Homo Deus um, that humans are trying to overcome their humanity and enter into a sort of divinity. He says, if this sounds unscientific or downright eccentric, it is because people often um, misunderstand the meaning of divinity. Divinity isn't a vague metaphysical quality. It's not the same as omnipotence. When we are speaking of upgrading humans into gods, think more in terms of Greek gods or Hindu divas rather than the omnipotent biblical skyfather. All he's saying is humanity knows that we're broken and we need to become more godlike. So they're just looking to pictures of gods in Greek myths and other places in striving after that. Um, the way that they do this, there are three pillars of salvation that appear throughout human history. One is money or capital. If we can get enough money, we can be freed from oppression. Um, the other is health. We can restore our lack of glory through health and wellness. The other is through happiness. We can get rid of guilt if we can just get happy. But what Harari shows us is that each of these aren't actually doing the trick. Um, it's hard to measure happiness, and it's hard to say that humans are more happy now than they were a thousand years ago, even though we're using more resources every single day. Um, the money way to escape oppression and hardship, that's not really working for us, is it? We're always one moment away from uh, a Wall Street crisis. Well, what about health? Um, we're just apparently one incident away from a pandemic. All of these things, you know, they're good pursuits. We, I think there's good reason to pursue increased capital and health and happiness, but they aren't the solution to the problem, and they only actually do something when they're positioned downstream from the, the solution to the sin problem that we have in Jesus. Okay, so what I'm trying to say here is whether you're a Christian or not, what Paul has to say matters because what we're trying to do to solve the human predicament isn't working. Right, so I want to suggest that these three pictures of salvation that are connected to the three pictures of sin, and I want to start with salvation as redemption from captivity to sin. Redemption as salvation from captivity to sin. In Romans, Paul describes humanity as under sin in Romans 3.9. Here, you should maybe cross out the lowercase s in your Bible and put an uppercase s. And in Romans 5 through 7, Paul will talk about this frequently. Humanity is under the reign of uppercase sin, the cosmic power. Paul gives a long resume of sin's accomplishments in its rebellion against God. And it, he describes sin's reign as characterized by death and in opposition to Jesus' reign that's characterized by life. Um, this appears in other Pauline writings really clearly. So, for example, in Colossians 1, 3, 16, or <laughs> Colossians 1.13, Paul, Paul talks about the kingdom of 
darkness or the domain of darkness. He, he talks about this empire of sin that exercises rulership over humanity. Now, as modernists, it would be easy to write off Paul's description of the tyranny of sin as just a literary device, just this personification. But it's better to see this uppercase sin as a real power in league with other anti-God powers in rebellion against God. So this is not just a personification. Paul is teaching that there is a real cosmic power called sin that oppresses humanity. Now, it might be difficult for us in demythologized secular modernity to conceive of real but immaterial powers at work in the world, but stories like the Lord of the Rings, where you can see the shadow, the dark shadow covering the earth and oppressing people, that helps us out a lot. But even without that, I would suggest that our modern society has moved a little bit further forward and belief in a spiritual realm is not that out of place. Um, I had a weird conversation at Half Price book this, Books this week with a lady who was in the Wiccan section and she had no problem in believing in the spiritual realm. So when we talk about sin as a real power that needs to be defeated by God for to free us from oppression, that's not weird. That's how most of the world thinks. We know that there's a problem. And I want to suggest that sin and its partner death has to be defeated for us to find a solution to our human predicament. And ultimately that happens in the sacrificial atoning death of Jesus Christ. For reconciliation with God to happen, to become at one with God again, the kingdom of darkness needs to be defeated and people need to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus so that no longer will they be under the reign of sin, but under grace. When we talk about salvation, a key component of our salvation includes rescue from the oppression of sin. Now, Paul explains that it's through the atonement that we have redemption. This redemption happens only in the Messiah, Jesus. Now, if you're looking in your Bible, you'll notice that Paul reverses the common ordering of the name Jesus Christ, and he says that the, re the redemption is in Christ Jesus. Well, this swap of word ordering happens pretty regularly, and we shouldn't make too much of it, but I think it's a good opportunity to remember that Christ is a title, not Jesus's last name. Christ is the title, the Messiah, the anointed king. And when we can catch on to that title in this context, our redemption as liberation from sin makes all the more sense. King Jesus is exercising authority over the tyranny of sin. Now that odd phrasing of the redemption that is in King Jesus should also catch our attention. It's a reminder that neither sin's kingdom nor Christ's kingdom are necessarily made up of nation states or physical powers and entities. Instead, sin, the realm of sin, is the realm of existence outside of God's kingdom, and God's kingdom is ultimately found in Jesus Christ, entered through faith and sustained through real unification with Jesus. Theologically, we call that union with Christ. Now, while King while Christians await the return of King Jesus, who will establish his physical kingdom on earth forever, we actually are entered into already the real kingdom of Jesus that's existing now. 
but not in a nation state situation. Wherever Christians are, there are Christ's kingdom citizens. Jesus' reign is realized already in the present. And the way to identify as part of God's kingdom is not through physical warfare. It's not through crusades. It's not through the establishment of a church-state-led government. Instead, it's by embodying, embodying the way of the kingdom in our living and participating in the new life that is in Christ. Okay. I understand that these ideas are a little bit complicated, but the main point is Jesus' kingdom is here, but it's not in terms of a government. It's in terms of the church and participating in the new life that we have in Christ. Now, this redemption has happened. Those who connect to Jesus by faith are freed from the power of sin. But the reality is that even though we're no longer under the reign of sin, very often Christians who are under the gracious rule of Christ find themselves returning to their old master, sin. We often return back to the old country, so to speak. That's because sin's final demise awaits the return of Christ. And until that time, we must resist returning to our old citizenship in the domain of sin and instead embrace our new citizenship in the kingdom of Christ. Okay, redemption is an important piece of our salvation. No longer are we captive to sin. But I want to make a few summary comments about our redemption before moving on to help show the importance of this. Um, first, those who have been redeemed from sin's power are not released to become their own master. Sometimes when we talk about redemption, it sounds like God is making you free just to be you. You're freed from the power of sin to become your own king and your own master. But that's not the case. Just as Israel was redeemed from pagan oppression in Egypt in order to worship and serve God, so too have we been redeemed from the oppression of sin to worship and serve King Jesus. There is no third kingdom with your name on it. There are no autonomous self-ruling individuals. Release from captivity to sin is a transfer into the kingdom of Jesus. And it's that reality that makes continuing in sin a non-starter. You, you can't enter the kingdom of Christ and think that you are free to keep sinning and living as you want. This is a challenge to communicate because Christ truly welcomes all as they are into his kingdom. But he doesn't leave us as kings of our own life. Second, the Christian message of salvation is not a message that offers release from guilt and promises that you can be whoever you want to be and live however you want. So this is related to that first point. Some have distorted the Christian message to mean that if you pray a salvation prayer, then you receive a pipeline of grace that fuels your sinful life. Why not keep on sinning so that grace will abound? These are the kinds of questions that Paul is addressing. Some others have responded to this distortion with a salvation of works as if you get freed from sin, but then you've got to earn your salvation. However, if sin is rightly perceived as including, if salvation is rightly perceived as receiving redemption from sin, then we are freed from its power and we no longer walk in it. Third, although our salvation does not allow us to remain living under the reign of sin, because we've been granted citizenship in the kingdom of Christ, the reality is that immigration is difficult. 
We are not well-adjusted immigrants who perfectly or quickly learn the new language of the kingdom. It's hard for us to adopt to a new way of being, to the kingdom's codes and civic responsibilities. It's hard to adjust to the kingdom values, so it's natural that Christian citizens don't always live up to their Christian citizenship. So when I say that you can't be a Christian and continue in sin, I'm not suggesting that you'll be perfect. I'm suggesting that you'll be like an immigrant moving to a new country, learning new laws, and learning to speak a new language. Imperfect execution of your civic duties as a Christian, violation of the kingdom codes, and grammatical errors in language acquisition does not revoke your kingdom citizenship. You are not in danger of losing your salvation because you are stumbling in your immigration process. At the same time, no longer are Christians under the reign of sin. We don't live by that code of conduct anymore. So we ought to be progressively embracing and taking on a new identity as kingdom citizens. Finally, I want to propose that it's not helpful to identify a central result of the atonement. So I'm, I think it would be unhelpful for us to say the atonement means just redemption, or redemption is the main thing about atonement. But I do want to suggest that it, redemption is logically prior to the other fruits of the atonement. If you haven't escaped from the kingdom of darkness, then none of the benefits of participating in kingdom citizenship really matter. You have to get out of the old country and into the new for your salvation to be experienced. So I do want to suggest that redemption is generally the starting point for our understanding of salvation. There's a reason redemption from slavery in Egypt is the paradigmatic picture for salvation throughout the Bible. It's because without escape from bondage, none of the other fruits of the atonement really do much for us. All right. I, I would also suggest that redemption in conservative Christianity is often overlooked as important for our salvation. We often focus on the next point that I'm going to address, justification, declaration of pardon, and we separate it from redemption, and that proves problematic. For that reason, I've spent a lot of time talking about redemption, more than I will these others. Um, it's not because redemption is more important, it's just because it's the doorway to our salvation. Right, number two, we need to understand salvation as pardon from a guilty verdict pardon from a guilty verdict. So far, we've seen that one aspect of the solution to the sin problem is freedom from oppression by sin. However, um, humanity is not an innocent victim when it comes to sin. We willingly and actively participate in acts of sin, and therefore we bring God's condemnation on ourselves. We stand guilty before the throne of God. So Paul has talked about this judgment that will happen. It will take place according to truth, according to who we are, and according to what we've done. And the reality is that we're all sinners, and we stand guilty before God. That's very bad news when we face an impartial judgment. So if we're going to find salvation, not only do we need to get out of the kingdom of sin, we also need a declaration of pardon. We, we need a declaration of pardon because we're guilty. Now, Paul is going to show us that Jesus' atoning sacrifice somehow makes it possible for us to receive a declaration of pardon when it comes to our sinful status. He doesn't explain how this happens in this text, 
I think we'll get to some of that later on. But Paul presents the atonement as the solution to our guilty verdict. In theological terms, we're talking about penal substitutionary atonement. This concept, I'm sad to say, is often misunderstood and uh, misused, but it's an important one. Um, For now, we simply need to pay attention to the fact that it's the atoning sacrifice of Jesus that makes it possible for God to render a pardon on those who are guilty of sin. The context, the metaphor that's being used here is a legal one. It's in the courtroom. We're declared not guilty despite our guilt. And I don't quite like that language. I think it's better to say we're pardoned in spite of the guilty verdict. So the solution to the guilt problem in Romans is described in terms of God passing over sin. Um, God justifying or reckoning as right those who have faith in Jesus. So because of the atoning sacrifice, people are given right standing before God. We're given a forensic, an open court declaration of pardon that's secured through the crosswork of Christ. This is great news because if you're honest with yourself, you're guilty. I'm guilty. And when we put redemption and justification side by side as Paul does, we can see why both are needed. Redemption is needed to escape captivity to sin. But without the promise of justification, the reckoning of non-guilty that happens through Jesus' sacrifice, there is no hope for emigrants from the kingdom of sin to enter into the kingdom of Christ. Without justification, without this pardon, we would be stopped at the border and sent right back into exile in sin's domain. But the atoning work of Jesus gives redemption and justification. We're given, free, we're given freedom and forgiveness for sin. Our guilt is gone. Our shame over our participation in sin is removed. And we can stand before the judge with confidence, not in ourselves or what we've done, but in what Christ has done on our behalf. That's one reason every Sunday we have a confession of sin and affirmation of pardon. In some weeks in our prayer, we really heavily lean into our sin problem, as Tyler did this morning. Other times we really heavily lean into our affirmation of pardon. But at the end of that prayer, we want to walk away knowing that we can stand with pardon and forgiveness, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. We need to bring these two doctrines of redemption and justification together. Both are needed. Yet, there's one more fruit of the atonement that's needed to round out the picture of our salvation. Number three, we need to understand that in our salvation, we are offered what I'm going to call righteousification or a restoration of glory. If you've been with us in previous sermons, you'll remember that we've wrestled with the challenge of translation when it comes to the English word group related to just and justify and justification. The Greek word group translated this way can also be translated as right or righteous, but we lack the English words righteousify or righteousification. So we make the words justify and justification do double duty. And I think that this has led to so much confusion among Christians and unnecessary division among otherwise faithful Christian traditions. Often the two can't be separated 
being just or righteous, often they go together and both happen through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. Even in Romans 3, 21 through 26, you'll notice the words righteous and just, those word groups appear multiple times, and it's all the same Greek word underneath it. And I think Paul is getting at two realities. One is that courtroom declaration of righteous that we just discussed, the pardon and forgiveness of sin. But I think he also addresses a moral righteousification, a change to who we are that removes our lack of glory and restores it with the glory of God's righteousness. Now, last week I made the case that a major consequence of our sin is that we lack glory. In Psalm 8, humans are described as crowned with glory and honor. This is a poetic commentary on Genesis 1 where humans are described as created in God's image. They were created to reflect something of God's presence, his glory, his righteousness. But in their sin, they cast that glory aside. Um, The picture is that God the Father created humans as his children and they're made to look like him, to reflect his glory, to be like him in righteousness. And in sin, we rebel against God and it's like we disown him. We become estranged from God and the family connection, the family resemblance is somehow lost. So what is needed is a return to glory, a return to family resemblance. And that happens through the atonement, through our righteousification, through what Paul will call our glorification in Romans 8, through what Paul calls in Romans 8, our adoption. Um, The concepts of righteousification and glorification and adoption are all related. And that's why if you read Romans 8, you can't get more than two verses without hitting one of those terms. They all come together and they're all made possible through the atonement. So how does it happen? Using this non-English word righteousification, I think we can get better insight into it. But uh, systematic theologians sometimes use terms like sanctification or transformation, but they all describe a gradual process of glorification in which the justified are righteousified. In our salvation, we receive God's righteousness through Christ that gives us a righteousness that we could never conjure up on our own. He starts our righteousification process and he will ensure its completion. And we call the completion of our righteousification glorification. That's what Paul gets at at the end of Romans 8 when he says those who are justified will be glorified, fully righteousified. When paired with the other accomplishments of the atonement, redemption and justification, the significance of our righteousification is better appreciated. In redemption, we're released from captivity to sin. We can enter into Jesus's kingdom without fear, knowing that we have a pardon, the legal forgiveness of sin. But what about our lack of glory? How can we live in the the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God's son without a restoration of glory? We can't. That only happens through the impartation of righteousness and the progressive transformation of each kingdom citizen into the righteousness of Christ. Without that gift of righteousness, we would lack the equipment to become fit citizens of the kingdom. We would lack the likeness to God. We would lack glory. But we're offered the path to glory in Jesus and in him alone. So as we've seen, 
our salvation can't be isolated to just one or the other of the fruits of the atonement. The atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ grants us a full salvation, all that we need, and that all that motivates us to get about embodying the kingdom in this world. It includes redemption, release from captivity to sin, and citizenship in Jesus's kingdom. It offers us justification, a declaration of pardon despite our guilt, an assurance of the forgiveness for our complicity in sin. And it begins within us a righteousification process, a progressive moral transformation and glorification that results in the restoration of the crown of glory that was set aside by humanity through the rebellion against God. So what do we do with this? Well, I want to suggest that if you identify as a Christian, if you would answer, I'm saved, but you're missing some of these aspects of what God has done for you in Christ, lean into them, explore them, reflect on them. Think about how it broadens and fills out what it means for you to be a kingdom citizen. In fact, much of the rest of our Roman series will be Paul showing this church what it looks like to embody and embrace their full salvation. So if you're a Christian, I would call you to embrace a full salvation and not just part of it. And I would call you, when you share the good news of the gospel with others, it is often right to identify the most obvious sin problem that a person is facing and grab onto one of these solutions as you introduce them to the gospel. But I would say don't stop there. Don't give people the wrong idea of a limited salvation, but give them over time the full picture of our salvation in Jesus. If you're with us today, and you don't identify as a Christian for whatever reason, I'm really glad you're here. And I would just ask you to consider what Jesus has done to solve the problem of humanity, to address the human predicament. And I'd, I'd encourage you to consider weighing this solution against those other solutions that so many have offered through money and happiness and health. And, and I would suggest that if you keep reflecting on this, you'll start to see how Jesus does something deeper and grander than any other solution that's ever been offered. I just want to say that I would be happy to talk with you about these things. It's hard to communicate all of these things in one sermon. It's impossible. But for all of us, I think we would benefit by engaging in conversation, by talking with one another about these things, and as we reflect on them in song and eventually come to the table, to receive the table as the regular picture in the communication of God's salvation to us in Jesus Christ through his atoning sacrifice. Let's pray and commit to pursuing this great salvation together. God, we thank you for the atoning sacrifice of Jesus and for this full salvation of redemption, of justification, and of righteousification that comes in Christ alone. Would you allow us to enter into it by your spirit, we pray. Amen.